So according to this view, I'll repeat, perpetrators' actions below the highest rank result in a large part from conforming to the group's sense of morality and purpose rather than from psychopathology. So this is what you find in, in Ordinary Men in Browning's book in the German Reserve Police Battalion. Welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. Just me in the studio today, Harrison Cayley. Today, I'm going to be going over what I think is one of the most interesting and probably, well, to me at least, most important psychopathy papers um, in many years. This one was just published in uh, the Journal of Criminal Justice. I'll have a link to the article below where you can find it. It is called Psychopathy and Crimes Against Humanity, a Conceptual and Empirical Examination of Human Rights Violators. It's by Robert D. Hare, Elizabeth Leon Meyer, Joanna Rasuant Salinas, Jorge Folino, and Craig S. Newman. Apologies if I got any of those names wrong or pronounced incorrectly. I'll read, I'm going to be reading parts of it and discussing as well. So I'll start out by just reading the abstract. The purpose of the study was, says, there is a dearth of empirical data on the contributions of personality, psychopathology, and psychopathy to terrorism and its actors. Because of a fortuitous set of circumstances, we had access to a sample of men convicted of crimes against humanity, CAH, committed during the Pinochet regime, each rated by expert clinicians on the psychopathy checklist revised, we also had PCLR ratings for samples of general offenders and community participants. Methods. We determined the psychometric properties of the PCLR for these samples, performed structural equation modeling to investigate the factor structure of the PCLR, and conducted a latent profile analysis of the obtained factors to identify classes or subtypes within the samples. Results. The PCLR's psychometric properties and factor structure were in accord with findings from other countries and settings. The PCR total scores of the CAH and general offenders were virtually the same, but much higher than those of the community sample. However, the CAH group had extraordinarily high scores on the interpersonal affective facets, yet relatively low scores on the lifestyle antisocial facets. LPA identified the expected four latent classes, with most CHA men located within the callous conning class. Conclusions. The results of this study provide unique information about the psychopathic propensities of a sample of state violators of human rights. Their pattern of PCLR scores was consistent with an extreme disposition for self-serving, callous, and, ruth and ruthless treatment of others, without, without guilt or remorse, and in the absence of a prior documented history of severe antisocial behavior. So as they write in the introduction, to our knowledge, this is the first study to use a validated clinical forensic measure of psychopathy among army and police officers convicted of a particular form of state terrorism, crimes against humanity. The scale, had, uh, the scale was the PCLR. The men had played an active role in the atrocities committed during the Pinochet regime in Chile. Psychological research of this sort is rare in any jurisdiction, particularly in Latin American states still dealing with the aftermath of military dictatorships. Military, military dictators in these states had concealed their crimes, as detailed by the National Commission on the Disappeared, the National Commission on Truth and, on, on Truth and Reconciliation, um, the, and the National Commission on Political Imprisonment and Torture. 
Subsequent democratic governments in Chile have not provided a reliable register of murders committed by state agents. So they go on to give uh, a little bit of a history of how this study came about and pointing out that it is the first study of its sort, or at least that they're aware of, um, because it's hard to get access to um, to these types of criminals. Uh, probably the last time anything similar was done was at the Nuremberg trials with the uh, the Nazi war criminals that were on trial there, and they were I, they were um, examined and interviewed by numerous psychologists and psychiatrists, but this was, that was in the, um, was it the late forties? And that was before, of course, any kind of, um, modern psychometric test was available like the PCLR. And if you read the work of like Gustav Gilbert, for instance, he, he talked about his interviews and studies of guys like, uh, like Hermann Goering and how he identified Goering as a, as a manipulative psychopath, but not really that applicable to, um, you know, the current state of how these things are researched. But how they were able to do this was that um, these Chilean um, researchers basically had, were able to get access to this prison where devoted exclusively to housing these and imprisoning these convicted, um, convicted not necessarily war criminals, but criminal uh, people guilty of crimes against humanity in Chile. So there's one prison that houses a bunch of these people that uh, were found guilty in over various years uh, for crimes committed during the Pinochet era in the 70s and 80s. And uh, so Rasuant uh, Salinas was a senior member of the prison facility. And so they basically got access to these guys and were able to... Um, arrange in-depth interviews with them and studies of their case files and able and therefore able to do you know a full PCL PCLR test on each of these guys and found came to some interesting conclusions um I'll read before we get to those however I want to read just this a little bit of this background information so this is from 1.3 crimes against humanity chile the depictions of terrorism mentioned above <clears throat> are compatible with the voluminous accounts of the Pinochet regime and its use of state agencies such as the military police and security services for a, for a reign of terror against segments of the Chilean population. The International Commission of Jurists noted, Pinochet was a dictator who would stop at nothing to consolidate his power. His regime eliminated thousands of opponents. During the dictatorship, arbitrary executions, arrests, assassinations, torture, and disappearances were standard practices. Tens of thousands of Chileans met their fate at the hands of Pinochet's ruthless regime. The acts attributed to Mr. Pinochet constitute crimes against humanity and grave infractions of international humanitarian law. The background and, dy and dynamics of the Pinochet regime are complicated, fraught with long-standing geopolitical, economic, religious, and international intrigue, and all well beyond the scope of this article. However, several general themes provide a backdrop for the actions of those convicted of crimes against humanity. Throughout much of the 20th century, Chile experienced chronic inequities and struggles among the working class, large landowners, financial and bureaucratic oligarchs and bourgeoisie, and multinational companies. 
the Cold War, the rise of socialism, fear of communism, economic problems, nationalization of industries, and American intervention in Chilean affairs colored political and military attitudes and behaviors. The nature and role of the military, and to an extent the police and security forces, are essential here. For example, the military in Latin America traditionally has been professional, career-oriented, modeled after civilian institutions, concerned with external threats and warfare, and separate from the country's politics. Students, primarily from the middle class, entered the military academy in their mid to late teens and progressed through a military analog of university studies. By the 1960s, in the wake of revolutionary insurgencies in other countries, military personnel began to study at the United States Escuela de las Americas, the School of the Americas, in the Panama Canal Zone, where they learned interrogation, warfare, and counterinsurgency techniques. The military's role became political, managerial, concerned with internal challenges to national security, skilled in dealing with suspected subversives, and repressive. In 1970, Salvador Allende Gossens, a medical doctor from an upper-middle-class background, became president of Chile. His attempts to restructure Chile as a, social demo- as a socialist democracy led to some reforms, political, economic, and civil unrest, and conflicts with the interests of other countries, particularly the United States. The military coup and death of Allende in 1973 saw the establishment of the National Intelligence Directorate, DINA referred to as Pinochet's secret police, or Gestapo. The DNA, DINA, I'll just call it the DINA, and various military intelligence, security, and police forces, including the militarized federal police, targeted and violently suppressed opposition by, po- by political leaders, students, trade union activists, workers, journalists, and social militants. Because of pressure from the United States in 1977, the military dictatorship replaced the DINA with the Central Nacional de Informaciones, the CNI, which carried on business as usual. Operation Condor facilitated these individual state operations, a transnational system of state terror that allowed one country to track down its citizens in another Latin American country and kidnap, torture, kill, or disappear them. Condor effectively integrated and expanded the state terror unleashed across South America during the Cold War after successive right-wing military coups, often encouraged by the U.S., erased democracy um, erased democracy across the continent. I screwed up some of my emphases there. Tremlett described Operation Condor... Uh, Described Operation Condor consisted of Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, Bolivia, Paraguay, Brazil, Peru, and Ecuador... They formed a single network that covered four-fifths of the continent. The men perpetrating such crimes saw themselves as warriors in a messianic, frontierless war against the spread of armed revolution across Latin America. Bringing them to justice has been slow, piecemeal, and often hampered by opposition from the countries involved in the crimes. The relevance of the above outline is that the participants in the current study were members of the DINA, CNI, or related military and police organizations, referred to as the armed forces. They participated in an unstable political and socioeconomic environment that fostered and rewarded both the bright and shadow aspects of leadership. The former includes physical courage, risk-taking, adaptability, self-reliance, and support of, self- of subordinates. The latter involves unethical and unlawful behaviors of leaders and followers, influenced or facilitated by being in a dangerous, chaotic, or violent environment. As noted by Fisher et al., 
The lack of taboos and prohibitive rules found in war may allow leaders to rationalize behaviors that would be unacceptable in a different context. Before and during the Pinochet years, the socioeconomic and political conditions provided a fertile environment for ambitious men with bright and shadow leadership qualities who shared the regime's view that communism was a threat to the country. We might argue that such a milieu would be particularly favorable for those most willing and able to exploit the opportunities afforded by darkness and chaos, with little concern for the morality of their actions. Babiak and Hare suggested... Psychopaths are emotionally unaffected by the human physical and psychological carnage that accompanies chaotic disasters. They are, by nature, predisposed to take callous but pragmatic advantage of the turmoil and terror experienced by others. Why, then, is there such a dearth of research on psychopathy and terrorism? So this last sentence is a reference to their look at the terrorism research. <clears throat> And apparently they've got a whole write-up that they didn't include in this paper on the background and the, the, the specific, uh, specifically looking at the link between psychopathy and terrorism and any research done there. And they point out it's a big field um, full of kind of contradictory approaches. Um, it's, not very, um, it's not very rigorous in its, um, in its, you know, in this multitude of approaches and, and, uh, and takes. And... They give a little bit of the background, actually, that at first, several researchers had suggested a link between terrorism and psychopathy, suggesting that this might be an important thing to look at. And then, um, but that has pretty much totally changed where the vast, like, there are no, no studies um, looking at the link between psychopathy and terrorism. And the ones that do look at, at psychopathology in this context kind of downplay it. Um, they they kind of they take the the kind of like a sociological approach that looking at the economic and social and interpersonal um, factors that go into uh, or that contribute to an individual kind of associating with a a terroristic group and that a lot of a lot of these researchers explicitly reject the link between any kind of psychopathology and and terrorism often, you know, coming to conclusions like saying that there's no no higher levels between of psych, of identifiable psychopathology within, um, you know, their samples of of terrorists that they were able to to test in some way, and so Hare and the rest in in this article point out the the problems with that uh, conclusion. It's not as cut and dried as a lot of these terror, terrorism researchers um, make it seem to be. For one, there's there's only like I think one or two actual studies that uh, that actually that actually look at psych psychopathy using an actual psychopathy test, not just some um, just the <clears throat> how do they put it? Not just um, anecdotal, speculative, or you know unvalidated measures for for psychopathy. So it is, and there are a few researchers now that are um, stressing that this is probably important to look at, and. Um, so hopefully that'll change because, as they point out, this is the the first article of its kind, specifically in relation to crimes against humanity, and I found it to be uh, one of the reasons I was excited when I found this paper is that if you read Robert Hare's book, of course Robert Hare was a developer of the PCLR, the test that I that that is mentioned as the in the article is the one that they used uh, to test these uh, these prisoners. He's also the author of Without Conscience and with Paul Babiak, Snakes and Suits. So 
the the first book without conscience of hairs focuses on mostly um, psychopaths in a prison situation so kind of the the criminal psychopath snakes and suits with paul babiak gets into corporate psychopathy so the idea that there are um that psychopaths aren't just common criminals or you know, drug dealers or serial killers or anything like that, but you can have a psychopathic personality in a corporate environment and they write about what that looks like and what the results of, um, what the results of someone in that kind of position look like. So this is the first time that, um, that Hare and, and Babiak are kind of explicitly moving into a more political environment and looking at the, the possible influence of psychopathy in, um, in this case, in dictatorships. So that's why it, it stood out, you know, as important, important to me as, you know, our viewers and listeners know, I recently edited the new edition of Ponderology, by, uh, political Ponderology by Andrew Lobachevsky, who talks about just these things. Um, Lobachevsky observes that the, you know, the secret police guys, the, the, the concentration guards in Nazi Germany um, were often psychopaths, almost as a, almost as a rule. And it makes sense. He also talks about this, what he calls the polarization process, where in a, in a country, during a chaotic time like this, it creates the conditions for psychopaths to kind of uh, move up the, the political ladder. Um, the conditions are right for them to, to kind of take, a, take more of a leadership role, gain more influence, and eventually um, take power completely. And so while... Well, and, and very few academics have, have gone in this direction or cited Lobachevsky's work as of yet. So maybe this will change. Now, as a bit of background, before we get into the, the actual studies that, and the results that they found, um, I want to bring up one more thing. This was new to me just because, you know, it was several years since I'd looked at the psychopathy research. I mean, I read uh, Thompson's book, Understanding Psychopathy, which pretty much sums everything up, you know, sums up most of the research as of a couple, you know, two or three years ago. Um, but there was something in here that, that was mentioned briefly in the abstract um, that I want to get to. And this is the idea of classes, uh, subtypes, varieties. Through, in the last, now this has been in the last, I think, seven to, you know, uh, well, two to seven years, in the last seven years, doing more analysis on kind of large, large pools of data on psychopathy scores, researchers like Hare and others have found four identifiable subtypes. They are classed as and named um, the prototypic, uh, conning callous, externalizing, and general. Now to understand what these are, we'll have to get into a bit about the PCLR and what it measures. So we'll bring up the picture of uh, one of the, yeah, one of the figures, figure, figures one and two. So look at figure one. These are how the, the different uh, traits, the different, um, the different items in the PCLR score, like how they all correlate to each other. So when they do factor analysis, they basically try to look at if there are clusters of these um, items that correlate together more than they correlate with the other ones. So doing this, they're able to find like uh, two factors. There's the interpersonal effective and lifestyle antisocial. And 
then um, so the, the the interpersonal correlates with effective and lifestyle correlates with antisocial and then they all kind of correlate to a lesser degree so it kind of breaks down this these 20 items into two main groups and those two main groups kind of break down into into two more groups so interpersonal is things like uh, charming uh, grandiose lying manipulative Effective, no remorse, shallow, callous, fail to accept responsibility. Lifestyle, the need for stimulation, a parasitic lifestyle, lack of goals, or realistic goals, impulsiveness, irresponsibility, and then antisocial behaviors, poor behavioral controls, early behavioral problems, juvenile delinquency, uh, revocation of release if they've been incarcerated um, or convicted, and criminal versatility. So the, the different classes show up as different, uh, well, the, for, for instance, the prototypic has a high score on each facet. So this would be your prototypic psychopath who is, who has like a, you can get a, a score of like 40 out of 40. There's a great, uh, documentary. I think it was done by, it might've been CBC like 20 years ago. Um, and there's this, the, the, there's an interview, probably 10 minutes worth in the, in the, in the documentary with this guy who, uh, who scores 40 out of 40. I'll try to find the link and it's on YouTube. So I'll find the link and include it in the, in the show description. But so this guy, 40 out of 40, that would be a prototypical psychopath. And so you get to see interviews with him and, uh, get an idea of how he comes across. <clears throat> the second group is the conning callous one. These have, uh, ele elevations on the interpersonal and affective facets, but not so much on the, in, on the lifestyle, interper uh, lifestyle antisocial. And so this might be, I'm pretty sure, the kind of, um, I'm pretty sure that the corporate psychopaths that Paul and Babiak talk about in Snakes and Suits would fall into this group. They're not, uh, you know, they don't necessarily have a history of, you know, gross antisocial behaviors. They're not, they're not criminally versatile. They don't have a, you know, a long uh, arrest and conviction record. Um, they're just conning, primarily conning and callous. And then there's externalizing, um, also referred to as sociopathic with a high score on lifestyle and antisocial facets, but not so much a high score on the interpersonal effective ones. So these are people, these are people that are, you know, engaged in crime, might be criminally versatile, but they, they don't have that kind of cold bloodedness. Um, if they're violent, their, their violence might be, um, reactive as opposed to instrumental. That is, they might, they get emotional and they, they, they act out that emotion on other people. Whereas, kind of prototypical psychopaths are more cold-blooded and calculating and they use violence instrumentally to get what they want. So it's not so much that they're emotionally, um, you know, they're not hot-headed. They, they use, they use violence, um, as a means to get what they want. And then there's the, uh, the general, and these have relatively low scores, low scores on each facet. So that'll be a background because they did find in their, in their study, they did find all of these classes um, replicated in here. So I'll move on to, let's see. Well, some of the obstacles they had to the study, um, they couldn't get kind of a perfect control sample of people. So they couldn't get, um, you know, military um, armed forces members from the same time period who weren't convicted of of crimes against humanity. So this really is just a study of those who are, who were convicted. So it's, uh, it's hard or it's not necessarily, 
um, accurate or responsible to extrapolate these results on you know every armed forces member um, from that time period. What they were able to do was to get to a contemporary uh, contemporary prison and community sample to compare with, which isn't perfect, but it you know it it shows it, you find some interesting results. So I'll move on to the actual study itself. So this is a description of the <clears throat> of the crimes against humanity, the CAH sample. So in 1995, the Chilean government constructed a prison specifically for men convicted of crimes of human rights violations committed during the Pinochet dictatorship in Chile. These men had been instrumental in directing and carrying out the suppressive policies of the regime. By 2016, the number of inmates in the facility had reached 120. So they were able to study 101 of these, 84%. And as far as we can determine uh, from extensive file information, none of the men had a diagnosable mental or cognitive disorder while serving under the regime or in prison. Documented or reported substance abuse was rare. 63.4 abstained from alcohol, 12.9 had an alcohol problem, and 1% had a drug problem. Most, 72.2%, were married, 2% had lived common law, 11.9% were divorced or separated, and 8.9% were widowers. All but one had been members of the armed forces, 67% in the military, 33% in the police forces, 65% were commissioned officers, many of high rank. There were 12 generals, 8 brigadier generals, 24 colonels, 7 lieutenant colonels, 8 majors, 3 captains, and 3 lieutenants. The rest were non-commissioned warrant officers. So the group was well-educated. And um, we note that these institutions did not accept students with evidence of prior unlawful behavior. However, those whose profile fit of the job requirements became candidates for recruitment by military, police, or intelligence units. During the regi regime, the officers involved in repression had joined the arms, armed forces well before the coup d'etat. They had reputations for ruthlessness in carrying out their official duties and controlling subordinates. Um, all were graduates of the School of the Americas, where they developed techniques and skills for the interrogation, torture, and murder of suspected communists, educators, union organizers, religious workers, student leaders, the poor, and peasants who fight for their rights. 44 men, or 44 of the men had a conviction for murder, 49 for kidnapping, 4 for criminal conspiracy, and 4 for torture and illegal constraint. Only five military men were still in the armed forces at trial. The rest were retired or working in various civilian positions, such as security or administration. So right there, the first, the, one of the first interesting things that stands out is, well, first of all, <laughs> the fact that they were, uh, so they were already in the military um, by the time of the coup d'etat. So whatever had, uh, if there were any special selection process, you know, processes that allowed individuals of this type to get in, they were already there. Or, well, there are other, con other possible conclusions to be drawn from that. Maybe we'll get to them. And also that they were actually screened for, um, for prior, you know, antisocial behaviors. Now, this is something that, uh, that I wondered about too, that had come up in, in, uh, you know, come up while researching political ponderology. So how does, how exactly does this work? 
So here's the hypothesis that uh, that psychopaths play an essential role in um, totalitarian systems of government. So, but when we look back at um, you know the communist countries, a lot of them, it seems like they weeded out uh, like criminal types. There were there were still distinctions between criminals and non-criminals. So what was going on here? Well, this kind of this paper explains that kind of dynamic that we'll see, because we'll see what the results are. But basically they screened out um, overtly criminal types. But that leaves the possibility of this kind of conning callous class to still have a great number, a great amount of influence and power within uh, a political system. But we'll get back to that. Um, the second sample was the offender sample. So basically they had, um, you know, just a, a group of inmates and, um, various ages. So to, to compare with the other group, this sample generally was not well-educated. Only about 30% had attended a secondary school or technical institute. Um, 38.8% were single. Only 17.7% were married, 35.9% were living common law, 1.9% were widowers, and 5.7% were divorced or separated. Substance abuse, in contrast to the CAH sample, was widespread, with 56.5% and 76.1% having an alcohol or drug problem, and most were unskilled workers. For the community sample, they basically got um, a bunch of psychology students, if I remember correctly, to volunteer to, to enlist, uh, or got, they got the psychology students to enlist three volunteers, friends, neighbors, handymen, colleagues, etc., um, to do an interview and to do a PCLR test to see what their psychopathy score was. So each participant was over 50 years old, um, no indications of mental disorders or cognitive problems. And they got as much information as possible to, you know, to get a, a, a community sample, uh, representative sample of the community to try their best to do so and compared those. So in this group, um, alcohol abuse was kind of, um, in between, you know, in between the criminal and the, and the CAH group. Um, slightly higher than the crimes against humanity group, 14.9%. However, 28.7% abused, uh, abused drugs, um, a lot more than CAH group, um, again, a lot less than the criminal group, uh, mostly of the soft variety, <clears throat> um, generally relatively well-educated, um, et cetera, et cetera. Teachers, business, businessmen, technical trades, blue-collar workers, that sort of person. So then they, they use the PCLR test and a self-report version a self-report test, the SRPSF. Some interesting find, uh, findings from that too, which we'll get to. Then they did, you know, they go over all of the types of analysis they did, um, and we'll get to some of the results. So on the PCLR, they found that the, the PCLR total scores for all three groups were very close to those of comparable offender and community groups from North America and other countries. So these results were consistent with, you know, what they already knew about the distribution of psychopathy scores. Even though the mean total scores of the crimes against humanity and offender groups were almost identical, only 7% of the 
Crimes Against Humanity participants had an elevated PCLR score greater than 27. The score the, goes from goes up to 40. Usually 30 is a cutoff point for being considered a, a psychopath. Compared with 21% of the offender group. So there are three times as many in the offender group that had a high, uh, an elevated PCLR score. And 0% of the community group had a high score. <clears throat> And they point out that this relatively low, percent, uh, low percentage of the CAH men with very high, uh, the, let me just read that, the relatively low percentage of CAH men with very high PCLR, PCLR scores reflects a low dispersion, standard deviation, of scores and low factor two scores. We'll see this in the table, in table one. So the CAH and offender groups differed considerably in the pattern of their PCLR facet scores. As figure three illustrates, the CAH inmates had much higher mean item scores on factor one interpersonal effective facets, but much lower mean item scores on factor two lifestyle antisocial facets than did the offenders. For illustrative purposes, the Crimes Against Humanity total score would fall about at about the 46th percentile for the North American reference sample of male offenders. So they're below average compared to North American offenders, um, as listed in the PCLR manual. By contrast, the mean factor one score, that is the interpersonal effective facets, would fall at about the 92nd percentile. So their factor one score was as, was was in the you know the top ten percent of the North American um, offender community sample. Further, ten percent of the crimes against humanity inmates, but only 05 percent of the offenders, received the maximum raw score of sixteen on factor one, a value that places them at the one hundredth percentile of the North American reference sample. The mean CAH factor two item score would fall at about the 25th percentile of the reference sample. So these people were, you know, below average overall, um, much, you know, in the, in the bottom quarter when it comes to antisociality and criminality, but in the top 10 and, and like even at the very top 100th percentile, the, as high as you can get on these factor one scores. So they had the, well, the prototypical or the, the callous, well, how to put this fact, some people think that factor one, um, you know, Heron and his colleagues don't agree with this, but some people consider the factor one score to be like the, the psychopathic personality. That's the primary psychopathic traits. So on those traits on factor one, they had the highest scores, um, you know, extremely high scores. So here they, they write. We emphasize that it is unusual for offenders to have factor one scores as high as those ob observed in our CAH sample. Moreover, it is rare to have so many with the highest possible score on a factor one components, accompanied by very low factor two scores. There are several possible explanations for this finding, including age-related reductions in the severity of factor two items and underestimation of scores on the, an on the antisocial facet. Because basically there's documented um, research showing that antisocial, um, anti 
antisocial behaviors kind of decline over time. The the factor one traits uh, remain relatively constant, whereas the the actual criminal behaviors can decline over time. So they're they're analyzing these guys when they're um, you know they're old and they've uh, you know they haven't had or their criminal. It's possible that their criminality has declined with age, but also um, the it's also possible that they, there's an underestimation of the scores on the antisocial facet because, well, um, lack of, lack of data, I think they, they basically, uh, say. So, mm, what would they say here? Okay. It is possible, for example, that the item poor behavioral controls often was scored zero for these guys <clears throat> because it's defining behaviors were within the accepted norm. It is also likely that low antisocial facet scores reflected the geopolitical socioeconomic context during the Pinochet regime and policies and practice for selecting and managing military and police personnel. As discussed in the introduction, military and police training in Chile, as in the other Latin American countries of Operation Condor, tended to exclude applicants with evidence of overt antisocial and delinquent behaviors. At the same time, the Pinochet regime fostered and no doubt promoted those who most readily could adapt to a new to a new culture of chaos and violence notably if it advanced the suppression of socialism and the nation's protection as patriotic duties in essence before and during the pinochet era chile's political and economic atmosphere was ideal for the emergence of a brutal despotic regime populated by ambitious unscrupulous and opportunistic individuals who seamlessly adopted a role as defenders of the state. Section 4.5 illustrates that those who rose to the top were the most psychopathic, at, uh, were the most psychopathic of all. Very interesting. <clears throat> so I'll now show, um, let's show figure three. So this shows the, the classes that they identified or no, no, no. Well, no, these are just, these are the different scores for the, the three different groups. So you can see the, <clears throat> the community sample on the bottom, which has a relatively low score on all facets of the PCLR, all, all psychopathy facets. Then you've got the offenders that are relatively high on all. And then you've got the crimes against humanity who are way higher or, you know, well, significantly higher in factor one, interpersonal and effective. So they're more, they've got higher scores than the, than the offenders on those, but lower scores than the offenders on antisociality and uh, lifestyle facets. Now this one, figure four, shows the, is this what I'm looking for? Uh, no, no, we'll skip figure four. That's the self-report. I'll just mention that briefly later on. Um, well, I'll, I'll mention it now. So they, what they found on the self-report is that the crimes against humanity group was much closer to the, um, to the community sample in their scores. So they, their, their self-reported, you know, psychopathic traits, interpersonal and effective psychopathic traits, they self-reported those traits as being much lower than what the, what the testers, <clears throat> um, uh, rated them as so that they rated themselves not well it seems uh, well it makes sense they rated themselves as being more normal than they actually were 
But interestingly enough, they they actually admitted to certain uh, to a higher level of antisociality. And I'll read the 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 author's interpretation of these real results. That is, <clears throat> the re- the reported self perceptions of the CAH men diverged considerably from expert clinical assessments, perhaps because of a lack of insight, or more likely, positive impression management. Gillard and Rogers found that offenders with high factor one scores were particularly successful at manipulating risk assessment scores and at concealing or minimizing antisocial and criminal activities. However, the mean self-report total and antisocial facet scores were higher among the CAH sample than among the community sample with large effect sizes. This suggests that the CAH cases were aware of some of their antisocial propensities, perhaps viewing and reporting them as personal strengths or as not damaging to their public image. So the next interesting thing they found was that when they analyzed the data in terms of the rank of the individual involved, they found a linear relationship between rank and psychopathy score. In other words, lower the rank, lower the psychopathy score. Higher the rank, higher the psychopathy score. Highest rank has the highest psychopathy scores. So the mean, um, the, the mean total PCLR school, score for the junior, middle, and senior ranks was respectively 19.1, 21.4, and 23.7. Again, those are out of 40. And each, oh, let's see. The main source of difference among military ranks was the interpersonal factor, followed by the, or facet, followed by the effective facet. In each case, the association was linear, with the senior ranks having the highest score and junior ranks having the lowest score. Each rank had scores considerably higher than those of the offenders. Okay. So, I'll read... One more in the uh, one more little section, and then we'll get to the uh, the discussion section of the paper. So this is on the latent profile analysis. So this is on the subtypes, the classes that I mentioned: the prototypical, the conning, callous, the externalizing, and the general or the common, whatever the last one is. So they found that. Uh, let's see. Mm, well, well, we'll bring up figure six. Where is that? So figure six, this shows the classes identified in the, uh, in the piece, in the CAH sample. So you see, we've got, uh, where is that? Let me just make sure that's what that is. Figure six. So when they analyzed the, <clears throat> the subclasses, uh, the subtypes, uh, prototypic, callous, conning, externalizing, and general. You know, they basically found the same division. So what they write in this section is, um, specifically, there was within-sample variation uh, in the relative contribution of the psychopathy facets, with 7% of the members in the prototypic class, 14 in the externalizing one, and 1% in the general. That is, 15% of the sample of those convicted of crimes against humanity 
did not have factor one ratings indic- indicative of a deceptive, manipulative, and callous psychopathic personality. So that is the externalizing and general classes. So 15% of, the, of these people did not have high um, psychopathic traits. These were, are people you might just consider well, ordinary men, ordinary people, or, um, or sociopaths. Um, yeah, sociopaths, not, not psychopaths. So uh, well, that's a whole other discussion. But yet, they write, they had committed heinous crimes. These individuals came from the lower ranks, and we might speculate that their actions were less a result of psychopathic, psychopathic propensities than of extant cultural and organizational factors that promoted violent and criminal behaviors, as in sociopathy or secondary psychopathy. Relatedly, uh, Shimenti, Capri, La Barbara, and Coretti found that low or mid members of the mafia convicted for a variety of violent crimes, had lower PCLR total and factor one scores than did other male offenders with similar convictions. The authors commented that the members had internalized mafia ideals and principles, had strong family ties, and had committed criminal acts more out of loyalty to the organization and their family than out of personal interest. Shimenti et al., also noted that Italian law prevented them from interviewing higher level bosses of, ma- of mafia, higher levels bosses of mafia organizations, among whom psychopathic traits might be more severe. Um, we did not have the same problem. So that's an interesting paper too. The you know doing the study on these people, these these uh, mafia convicts, and finding that they actually had you know relatively low psychopathy scores, even if they'd been you know arrested for. Um, if I remember correctly, you know, crimes that could be even, could even be, uh, like murders, assassinations, things like that. But <clears throat> the possibility is that the, you find the real psychopaths at the higher levels. So there's a few, look at the time here. There's a few interesting things in, <clears throat> in the general discussion at the end of the paper. Let's see. So, a common feature of these actors. Okay, so a common feature of these uh, uh, CAH, these CIH, CAH group um, was a declared lack of remorse or moral responsibility for actions that purged the state of political deviance. As Diggleman put it, there is a substantive gap between the assumed and the actual role of apology and remorse in international criminal proceedings. Cases of sincere remorse or apologies among high ranks are hardly existent, and fakery of remorse is fostered by judicial practice. Importantly, for our purposes, Diggleman distinguished between perpetrators with the highest ranks and those with only a high rank. The former, the highest ranks, are conflict entrepreneurs, who use neutralization techniques to create a group value system and identity to normalize criminal and violent enterprises. They formulate and spread the ideology and demand allegiance from the rest, and their actions and lack of remorse are related to psychopathologies such as malignant narcissism or psychopathy. According to this view, perpetrators' actions below the highest rank result in large part from conforming to the group's sense of morality and purpose rather than from psychopathology. 
So this re this relates to a point that I made in the introduction to political ponderology, looking at three famous or semi-famous studies, the Milgram experiment, uh, the Zimbardo prison experiment, and uh, Christopher Browning's book, Ordinary Men, on the, the German Reserve Police Battalion that was involved in, um, well, well, also crimes against humanity, <coughs> torture, murder, uh, mass murder. And one of the points I made in there is that if you look at the studies like Milgram and the Zimbardo at, at the prison experiment, Stanford prison experiment, um, it seems like the, the assumption of a lot of people, well, the experimenters themselves and a lot of people who cite these studies is, well, they're, they're focused on, well, how can ordinary people do these sorts of things? And what are the, in the Milgram experiment, what are the limits of conformity of obedience to authority? And they found, you know, they found some very interesting conclusions. Um, and all three sources found something very similar that I point out. That is that in all three situations, you find a small group, um, a small minority who are totally willing and willing and able to, in, to do whatever the, whatever their orders are, no matter how, um, you know, how deviant. So you'll find a small sadistic group. You'll find a majority within the group, a large majority, who are reluctant, but who go along with the crowd. You know, they don't, they don't want to push the buzzer to, to, to punish the person in the, in the Milgram experiment. They don't want to, um, to be engaged in, you know, abuse of, uh, uh, of other test subjects in a prison environment. They don't want to, you know, shoot a family of civilians in a, a war zone in a, you know, a cleanup operation, but they do it because they're ordered to, and because everyone else is doing it. And then you always also find a small group of refusers. So there's always a small group of people that will refuse to go along with it. <clears throat> and what, um, so what's refreshing is to see that, that, um, there are some people that get it, that, you know, it's not just a study of, of normal people. Um, first of all, that like the test subjects of in Milgram and Zimbardo, but to a lesser degree, cause there are some problems with potential problems with his methodology. But if you look at just Milgram or in a real life scenario, like, uh, like the German reserve police battalion, you have a whole bunch of ordinary people, and then you put them in a new situation and they essentially sort themselves out into different groups. The three that I mentioned roughly, but there's no focus on, well, what must be the personality of the person giving the orders, the person defining these policies and these practices in the first place in the, so in the Milgram experiment, what role was Milgram playing? Because in ordinary life, you obviously don't have, um, you know, researchers like Milgram himself telling people to give other people electric shocks. The very fact that he had to pretend that role or get someone else to pretend to be in that role shows how out of the ordinary it is, how unnormal it is, abnormal it is. So, but it's very hard to, um, to turn those tables and to, to, to study those, that position, those types of people, uh, scientifically, and because that that's hard, you know, there's this, there's been this dearth of research that the, that Hare and, and the, the other authors talk about. Um, 
But like I said, luckily there are a few people that at least, you know, speculate. It seems, you know, it should kind of, it should be obvious. It seems like common sense, but, um, but it's nice to have, uh, it's nice to have the details and to see it studied in depth. So like this, uh, like they have in this quote about the highest rank, that there are conflict entrepreneurs. So these are people who use techniques to create this new value system. And as they write, um, as Hare writes, these, these actions are going to show the, the, the signs of psychopathy. And so according to this view, I'll repeat, perpetrators' actions below the highest rank result in a large part from conforming to the group's sense of morality and purpose rather than from psychopathology. So this is what you find in, in Ordinary Men, in Browning's book, in the German Reserve police battalion, you find that all of these guys are conforming and they conform so much that they get used to it, um, more or less. I mean, it's still disturbing, but they, they do it and and they, you know, they get used to it. So they go on to talk about these subtypes. Um, they pretty much reiterate the, this division that they found, this callous conning. Um, they talk about the idea that, that factor one is, more of a primary psychopathy and factor two is secondary psychopathy point out some of the problems with, with seeing it that way. Um, and what, let's see, is there anything else? Well, one more comment that they write on the difference between the, the expert assessment using the PCLR and the self report using the SRPSF. Um, they write, Whatever the exp explanation, it is clear that these two instruments did not provide congruent representations of the psychopathy construct among men convicted of crimes against humanity. Had we used only the self-report, we would have concluded that these actors were much less psychopathic than were general offenders, and no more psychopathic than, the, than were the community men. <clears throat> More generally, these results suggest that investigators should be circumspect when comparing research findings based solely on self-report measures of psychopathy with those based on the PCLR, um, especially when dealing with a population likely to harbor individuals with very high factor one scores. Beyond this, the SRPSF may have provided clinical information about how highly psychopathic individuals deal with questions about their nature. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, <laughs> they try to hide it. So that's pretty much the paper. Um, I'll include a link to it so you can read it on your own. Cause there's, you know, there's more details than I was able to, to read. I just focused on the bits that st stood out as most interesting to me. But one of the things that, one of the questions that, I'm left with is, is this group. So, well, it'll be interesting to, I, I hope there are more studies like this done because I want to know if the extremely high factor one score and very low factor two score is actually, um, evidence of kind of an extreme version of the callous conning class, um, you know, psychopathic subtype, um, or if it is, as they suggest, maybe that's just a result of, um, you know, lack of information, um, about these, about other, you know, antisocial, uh, antisocial behaviors, criminality, or if it's, or if it is a result of, 
um, you know, combined with the the age effect, you know, is this class uh, like a new, you know, a new subtype or a variation on this subtype? Because, as I mentioned earlier, what you know, the one of those interesting things was that the the military, the armed forces, actually screened out um, criminal individuals. So there was this sifting process, this screening process, where um, you got rid of you got rid of a certain type or certain types of uh, of psychopaths. Not only did you did you filter out the externalizing like sociopathic group. These are the the individuals like antisocial personality disorder, sociopathy, who are who are very criminal, have a history of criminality, but relatively low um, factor one scores. So you filter out the that kind of criminal element, which is like uh, well, I can't remember the percentage, but a very high percentage of, you know, the people currently in prison. And then, but you also filter out the, the kind of, um, um, like full-blown prototypic psychopaths who have both, you know, high scores on both. So, and, and then you're left with this callous conning group who are able to be, um, you know, they're able to function as in a society to a, to a greater degree than, the, the criminal types and the sociopaths or the, 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 you know, the extreme psychopaths. So I, I would like to see more in, more research, you know, on this type. Is it a type that's in the general population? Um, now, what, one, one other thing that stood out is the, the study, the, the test that they did on their, their, uh, their community sample. So they, you know, find a random group of people and extremely low psychopathy scores. And that's the case, um, that's the case in just the majority of the of the general population. I haven't been able, uh, I haven't checked out the papers yet, but uh, so I'm wondering if I can find a graph of this. But if you if you lay out the like a a, a bar a bar graph or a bar chart for for the total psychopathy scores for like what is it something like eighty percent of people it'll be really really low, and then for maybe fifteen percent of people, uh, fifteen to twenty percent it'll be mid-range and then you've got this you know this small group of people for whom who have a like a tiny a tiny percentage of people who have a very high score you know 40 out of 40 so it looks kind of like this and so when you just have a, a general sample of the community you're not going to find very many um you're not going to find very many prototypical psychopaths you know the, the estimate is around one percent but It would be interesting to see the breakdown of data if you could, if the, you know, if it was somehow possible to do PCLR scores on like a, a sample of like 10,000 people in the general population, like from all walks of life, every area, and then to see how that factor, how those, how those subtypes break down. Like, are you able to find, you know, a group of individuals with extremely high factor one scores, but, you know, um, very low factor two scores because these people wouldn't be in prison necessarily. Um, if they're not criminal, you know, they might get caught for something, but they won't be, you know, they won't have that criminal, criminal versatility that, uh, um, that prototypical psychopaths have. So that's one, one thing too, that I'm going to be looking out for that. I hope they, you know, <clears throat> more people will do research on, but maybe my last point, just to bring up one more thing from 
Ponderology. And he points out that, uh, you know, he doesn't, this, he wrote this book before the psychopathy checklist, you know, before Robert Hare. Um, he, he did have access to Hervé Cleckley's book, Mask of Sanity, the kind of classic that inspired Hare in, in his work on psychopathy. And one of the things that Lobachevsky points out is that in uh, a pathocracy, it's his word for you know a totalitarian government, the, the nature of which is shaped by the influence and presence of psychopaths, in a pathocracy, the the types that play the most important roles are what Cleckley called the like the incomplete manifestations and what what modern psychologists might call the subclinical types. So I'm wondering, I think, you know, my my guess is that these types identified in the hair paper among these armed forces personnel um, are essentially what Lobachevsky um, and Cleckley were talking about. Um, well, primarily what Lobachevsky is talking about. What am, what am I talking about? <laughs> that the, um, the individuals that Lobachevsky is talking about are these high factor one types with low factor two. They, you know, unless you know, um, unless you know their, their kind of criminal history, they might just be, um, they might just have the reputation as being, uh, you know, uh, a ruthless general. Um, but, ne but nevertheless, um, in depending on the time you're living in the place you're living in, that can be a very, um, a very prestigious position causing people to think, oh, well, there's nothing, you know, what's the problem? They've, they've got a, a steady job. They're good at their job. Um, they're obviously not um, this, you know, parasitic criminal type that uh, has no responsibility. These are people that do their jobs and do them well. So in that sense, they kind of manage to, um, you know, exist like a sheep in uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing among the, 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 the allegedly non-criminal population. So my last point I wanted to make in relation to ponderology. So we'll notice that um, that this was in the context of an anti-communist, you know, right-wing dictatorship. So this is a point that I think um, Lobachevsky makes. I've got a footnote in there. Let me see if if I can find this footnote. Yeah. 321. So he's going to, is talking about the, you know, the situation in the Cold War where you've got communism in the USSR and various other countries, which he considers a pathocracy. So he's saying that the same thing is going on in the communist countries. And then in the West, you have this <clears throat> reaction to and fear of communism. And so, um, he writes about the, the pathocratic ideology. So in this case, using communism as an, as an example. So along with its degenerate growth, such an ideology is rejected by all those social groups governed by healthy common sense. The activities of such an ideology thus induce nations to stick to their old tried and true basics in terms of structural forms, providing hardline conservatives with the best weapon possible. 
So basically, there will be a hardline conservative reaction to, um, you know, a pathocratic ideology like communism in the 20th century. So I've got a, commun- a comment on that, though, a footnote. I note that they can also lead to a right-wing reaction, sometimes approaching the same degree of pathology. For example, the anti-communist regimes of Hitler, Franco, and Pinochet. So the, the, the sad irony is that the West, in its, in its reaction to communism, misdiagnosed the problem and then support all of these right-wing dictatorships in the state in the in in Latin America as a you know a bulwark against the the imposition of communism and in the process they essentially create the same thing um pathocracy this is a, a repeat this ha- this was a repeating process and has been well it was a re- it was a repeating process during the cold war and it's been repeating ever since so in the cold war like um, like this paper says, in um, in Chile and all these other countries, there was the essentially essentially they created a, a, a pathocracy to fight against and prevent the imposition of a pathocracy, all because they couldn't identify the actual root of the problem. They looked at communism and said, "Oh, communi- this these these regimes are so bad. The problem is therefore communism. So therefore, we will do anything and any, and everything to." prevent the emergence of communism, even if that means, in practice, engaging in all of the worst types of behaviors um, and crimes that the communists were committing. You find the same thing in Afghanistan with the support for the Mujahideen. You know, we have to prevent communism from, you know, taking root in Afghanistan. And so we're going to arm these, uh, these jihadis uh, to do it and look at, and, and then it happened again in Bosnia, happened again in Syria and Libya, and it gets to the point where you've kind of kind of wonder. It's like, are the, is the are the people behind these uh, supportive interventions and uh, um, just support of these organizations and and groups are they really that stupid or they, you know do they know what they're doing because it's supporting one psychopathic group to um, allegedly fight another psychopathic group. If they had identified the problem, you know, diagnosed the problem, then you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have had these right-wing military dictatorships take the form that they did. You wouldn't have had the, the rise of, you know, global terrorism in the form of, um, you know, in the Islamic form. And you wouldn't have the resurgence of Nazism in uh, in Ukraine, for instance, that's another one. So in the in its in its in Ukraine's fight against the communists, the uh, the, the CIA and the West have this history of supporting um, you know the descendants, the the literal ideological de- descendants of um, you know Ukrainian Nazis. So, and we can see what that's led to um, today. My last comment just being that this paper is, um, I tweeted about it several times. It's, you know, what we've learned in this paper um, should go a long way to putting into context a lot of the the videos that we've seen come out of Ukrainian servicemen and these, you know, like the Azov Battalion, these neo-Nazi battalions incorporated into the into the Ukrainian armed forces, torturing and killing prisoners of war, 
um, civilians, suspected, um, you know, uh, pro-Russian collaborators. A lot of these videos have been coming out in the last month, um, just showing, you know, showing the worst types of crimes against humanity and the, and the people committing them are filming it and putting it on social media. So that says something about the lack of the lack of insight, like Hare and, Hare and others, um, you know, in this paper talk about. So an interesting context, and of course, you know, like the like the conclusion of. Uh, well, no, I'll just leave that there. That's that's enough about that. Um, yeah, it's a it's an important paper. It's still relevant and uh, well, increasingly relevant, just like p political ponderology. So I think I'll leave it there. Is there anything else? No, I think that's it. So I'll, I'll link to the sources. Um, I'll link to this paper, ponderology, and that video, that documentary with the, with the, uh, with the 40 out of the guy that scored 40 out of 40 in the show description. So check out this, those sources and we'll be back soon. Uh, with my co-hosts next time it won't be just me rambling so thanks for tuning everyone tuning in everyone if you enjoyed the show please like it please subscribe and we'll see you later take care